You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Okay, can we begin, please? Uh, I'd like to welcome you all to uh, our seminar on Eurasia, Russia and Eurasia. Uh, I've been told to let you know that we are we are on Twitter, apparently. Uh, so there's the hashtag there, UI event. You can follow us, I guess, uh, as well. So um, please keep that in mind. My name is Mark Basson. I'm a... Uh, To emphasize the point, I take my name away. Yeah, okay. Mark Basson, I'm a professor of Idea Historia, History of Ideas at Sudetern University, and a fellow, uh, associate fellow here at the Utrechts Politiska. Uh, Sudetern is a co-sponsor of our event today. Um, I'm going to introduce our event with a few words to give you a little bit of background because this is the first of, of three events, actually, a series of three seminars. I'll then introduce our speakers. Um, and then we can uh, uh, begin, the, uh, begin the discussion. Uh, in the 1990s, for those of you who were listening, you would begin to hear about a new continent that was called Eurasia. And this was, uh, for those of us kind of listening at the time, a little unfamiliar at first. Where was Eurasia? What exactly was Eurasia? It wasn't anything, something anyone had heard a great deal about before, but it was referred to more and more as the years went on. And today, it's certainly one of the most talked about locations in world politics. Now, in fact, Eurasia isn't entirely new. It was discovered, if uh, to call it that, uh, uh, late in the 19th century. It was discovered not by political scientists, but rather by geologists, actually, people interested in plate tectonics. And it wasn't talked about very much in sort of social sciences, especially not talked about by politicians. One exception to this was a group of intellectuals, of Russian conservative intellectuals who fled the revolution in the, 19, in the 1920s and 1930s, regrouped in the West, and they developed theories about Russia and the Russian nation as a special civilization, and they called it Eurasia. They used this term Eurasia to talk about it, and the movement they uh, formed, uh, Eurasia in Russian and Eurasistva in uh, Eurasianism. Now, after the end of the Cold War then, the collapse of the Soviet Union, some of these old ideas of Eurasianism were taken up again in Russia, and to many people, it seemed like a useful, the idea of Eurasia seemed like a useful replacement for the concept of the Soviet Union, which of course was no longer existent. And in the decades since then, since the 1990s, the term has become a very central one, very, very central one in Russian political discourse. But as this was happening in Russia, the appeal of the term proliferated. And many other countries and regions also began to engage with it and began to take it up. They began discussing their own interests, their own international position in terms of Eurasia. And the situation was quite confusing. Some of these regions were actually part of the, Soviet, of the old Soviet Union. Countries in Central Asia, for example, talked about Eurasia in a different way than uh, the Russians were talking about it. Other countries, India, South Korea, Iran, were very far away and very different, but they also talked about Eurasia. For each of them, it was important and significant, but for each of them, it meant something different. It meant something quite different from what it meant to the Russians in Moscow. Effectively, each region or each country valorizes, if I can put it like that, they valorize, they signify Eurasia differently. They see a different significance in it. And that situation is what our seminars are all about. And what we're going to do uh, beginning today is look, we have three seminars, each one looking at a different major country. We begin with Russia. The next seminar in the autumn will be uh, on China, and our final seminar will be on Turkey. In each case, Eurasia as a continental vision is, is similarly, in a similar way, very central to 
discourses about global position, about international relations, about national sort of destiny. But the specifics of your age in each case, the continental vision, in other words, is refracted through a very particular prism of national interests and national priorities that, of course, are different for each country. And this is what we want to try and pick apart and explore in our seminars. Russia, the first country really to embrace this Eurasian vision, so it's appropriate that we start with Eurasia today, uh, with Russia today, rather. So this is the background. Uh, you can expect more seminars after this one. Please keep that in mind. Please be looking. Let me introduce now our speakers. Uh, each one will have around 15 minutes to talk. We'll have a little bit of exchange then after that, and then we'll open it up for discussion. Uh, we'll begin with Igor Denisov, uh, who is a senior research fellow at the Moscow State Institute of International Relations. That's MGIMO, for those of you in the know. He's also a senior research fellow at the Institute of Far Eastern Studies of the Russian Academy of Sciences. And we're very grateful he's joining us here from Moscow today. Pavel Bayev, at the end, political, he's very familiar, I think, to uh, those of you in the uh, game of, of, of Russian studies, Russian politics, political scientist and a security advisor, a research professor at the Peace Institute uh, in uh, Prio, Peace Research Institute in Prio in Oslo, and a senior non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institute from uh, Brookings Institution in Washington. He joins us from Oslo. And finally, we have Maria Danilovich, who is an assistant professor and researcher at Belarusian State University in Minsk. And currently she's with us in Sweden as a research fellow at uh, the Institute, newly founded, uh, newly organized Institute for IRES, Institute for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Uppsala University. So welcome to our guests and please, uh, Igor. Uh, good afternoon. First of all, I would like to thank the organizers of this, this very interesting seminar. It's really a, a huge topic, but uh, I would touch on, upon it on, from the point of view of Russian foreign policy. Mgimo is, uh, thank you for introduction, Mgimo is a main diplomatic school in Russia, but I'm working in the Institute for International Studies, it's a part of Mgimo, it's like a think tank of Russian foreign ministry. But a little disclaimer, all that I'm going to say is not, uh, is not sh shouldn't be regarded like a Kremlin voice, it's like my personal observation and the result of my research. I'll touch perhaps three points. First of all, why we are talking about Eurasia today in Russia, why it's so important in Russia. The second, uh, I will try to present Russian picture of Eurasia based on the official discourse, because uh, it depends on uh, what, it depends on the sources. It's, and I think that it's very important to ad address this issue uh, based on the uh, pronouncements of uh, Russian leaders, uh, some conceptual doc documents, and so on. First of all, why? And, and the, my third point about the role of China in uh, Russian Eurasian politics is really very important, and I would like to to answer one simple question: whether the main context of uh, Russian Eurasian uh, policy is forming some uh, military alliance, some condominium to govern Eurasia, or no? Uh, First of all, about why why Eurasia is so important today, and uh, perhaps first of all, we should mention that it's a part of uh, uh, Russia policy. It's a part of Russian policy in Asia. It's, it's a part of so-called pivot to Asia. 
certainly it's uh, a result of uh, Western sanctions, but not uh, only this point we should mention, because it's also very important for Russia to develop uh, its own territory, to, to develop Far East. It's a part of Russia's economic internal policy. The second uh, reason is the rise of uh, various integration projects in the region, and uh, it's a desire of Russia to position, uh, to find a place for, for, uh, for Russia in this uh, rise of inter integration projects. The third point, perhaps it's a response, also a response to China's One Belt, One Road initiative. Uh, it's a way to counterbalance uh, China rhetoric, to provide Russian understanding of the Eurasian, uh, uh, Eurasian continent. And perhaps uh, the last point, it's also a message to, uh, it has internal implications, it's a message to political elite. It's just to show, uh, to underline, to emphasize the importance of uh, Asia region for uh, for Russian political elite, because you know, perhaps we are two European-oriented countries. We have, uh, all, I, I personally believe we are European country, but still uh, in concrete policy, we should take into account uh, Russia's interests in Asia. Uh, I'm passing to the um, second part of my, uh, my presentation. It's the uh, history of Russian pivot to Asia. And depending to Russian uh, interlocutor, one may hear different dates for when Moscow history turn started. Uh, some even would trace it to the Soviet leader, last Soviet leader, President Mikhail Gorbachev, who has normalized relations with China after decades of Sino-Soviet split, and also has mended ties with uh, South Korea after the tragic incident uh, in 1943 uh, when a Soviet fighter um, jet shot down a Korean Air Boeing. Others would say that Russia has launched its pivot to Asia at times when Boris Yeltsin, uh, the first leader of post-Soviet Russia, was intensifying talks on border settlement with China and Japan. Even during the uh, presidency of Vladimir Putin, uh, we have also at least four Asian pivots. Still, it was only after the Ukrainian crisis uh, that uh, Russian, Russian leadership uh, started to take Asia very, very seriously. Uh, the Kremlin has invested enormous effort uh, to reorient uh, the entire economy towards the East. Uh, there was a brainstorms after the Western sanctions and uh, several um, historical cases of sanctions regime were presented to Russian government, and uh, uh, the result of this discussion suggested that in order to withstand uh, Western pressure, the country needed a strong external partner. And so the Kremlin eyes turned, turned to Asia. With its growing population, dynamic region, it, it uh, was looked like a natural replacement for the weakening links with the West. Uh, this is the context in which the phrase pivot to Asia became popular among uh, Russian elite. Another very important uh, event came in uh, 2015 when uh, Chairman Xi Jinping came to Moscow for the May 9 Victory Day parade, by the way, boycotted by, by the Western leaders. And uh, 
Afterwards, Putin was his guest of honor during September uh, 3rd commemorations of victory over Japan. And uh, very important documents uh, were signed during uh, this visit, this first visit, and among them uh, the decision to coordinate Russian and Chinese efforts in Eurasia. Uh, it's a memorandum on, uh, it's a joint statement about coordination between Eurasian Economic Union and uh, Silk Road uh, Economic Bell. It, it helped us to prevent um, unnecessary competition, especially in Central Asia. We noticed that a lot of Chinese researchers came to the region agitating against uh, Russian-led integration projects and uh, voicing uh, uh, some support from support uh, for their One Belt, One Road initiative. Certainly, uh, this competition is, uh, is undesirable, so the uh, Russian side proposed to sign this document. It's a rare thing in the uh, history of Russia-Chinese relations when China came with their own text and left Moscow with the Russian text. Because uh, I think in 2015, the only uh, hope for some support. But it was another story with this document because uh, Russia acknowledged the importance of the One Belt, One Road initiative. Uh, China acknowledged the importance of uh, East, uh, um, sorry, uh, Eurasian Economic Union and uh, decided to sign agreement trade agreement between uh, European Economic Union and China. And the third part is a common vision of uh, Russia and China uh, in Eurasia. This document sometimes uh, is criticized uh, by the, even by our partners in Central Asia because I think they don't quite get the meaning of it. It just set an agenda for common uh, work with China on Eurasia development. So it's very important. We are not taking uh, China agenda for granted, just support it. So uh, based on the documents, Russia is not part of One Belt, One Road. One Belt, One Road uh, coming to our uh, borders uh, turns into alignment of East uh, uh, Eurasian Economic Union and One Belt, One Road. So we are not just supporters, we are inviting China for cooperation. I think it's very, very important. Uh, by the way, when um, President Putin uh, participated in the first forum of One Belt on Road two years ago, it's going to be the second forum in Beijing these days, he uh, described uh, the situation based on this uh, joint, uh, joint, joint statement. Because uh, I think it's very important to have a joint efforts between chi of China and uh, Russia to develop, uh, uh, to develop Eurasia. And uh, if we turn to the Russian conceptual documents, like a concept of foreign policy, it's very easy to research, by the way, it's very easy to research uh, Russian foreign policy because we have open uh, documents on it. Uh, and uh, I'm a China scholar, Lex, uh, we, we are lacking such documents in China because no such documents are published in China. So in a recent uh, edition of uh, Russian foreign policy concept. Uh, Eurasian uh, policy is discussed, but is discussed 
uh, in a part devoted to the regional cooperation. So it's a very important point because it's not part of Russian security policy. I think uh, it's a very important point to, to think about Eurasian policy is mainly economic. It's mainly about uh, Russian part in integration projects and also um, it's, uh, it's a measure to help develop Russian Far East, to invite uh, foreign investors and to have uh, new life in this Russian huge territory. Uh, we should distinguish between big, Euro uh, big Eurasian partnership and Eurasian economic partnership. Perhaps not only all the experts understand the difference between two meanings. Uh, big Eurasian partners is a general idea. It's, uh, it's like uh, China one belt, one road cosmos. It's, it's a Russian uh, version of uh, understanding of uh, connectivity in Eurasia. But uh, Eurasian economic partnership is very concrete. It's a Russian-Chinese joint product, uh, project. So now we have come to the uh, conclusion of the memorandum of uh, signing uh, some understanding of the um, some agreement between uh, Russia and China on Eurasian economic partnership. It won't be, it will not be a trade agreement because Eurasian economic, it, uh, because without consent from the, all the members of Eurasian Economic uh, Union uh, states, we can't conclude any tariff. It's non-tariff uh, agreement, but also it's very, it's very important. Uh, and uh, finally, I would like to, to speak a bit, little bit about uh, whether Russia-China uh, is moving to the, to the kind of condominium or kind of uh, military bloc in Eurasia. I think we shouldn't underestimate difference between um, position between Russia and China, because I can cite several examples. For example, uh, Russia position on the South uh, China Sea is not China supporting. We are not supporting China in South China Sea. We are strictly neutral because we have uh, a lot of um, partners uh, in the region, and uh, one side is supported of. Um, China uh, will not good for our relations with the Southeast Asian uh, nations. And the second example is Russian-Georgian military conflict in South Ossetia in 2008, and especially uh, the, uh, the Russian recognition of the independence of that republic and Abkhazia. Uh, it put Beijing in very difficult uh, position. Uh, on the one hand, they couldn't refuse to support the principle of the territorial integrity uh, of the UN members, uh, but uh, also they couldn't approve the disruption of so-called NATO advance to the east. But still, uh, China didn't recognize Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Uh, however, the official Chinese media covered the events of Russian-German war very neutrally. But still, they didn't recognize uh, the independence of uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Uh, perhaps the only indirect uh, support was the uh, providing of uh, humanitarian aid to, to the South Ossetia. Uh, we should say the economic cooperation of China, uh, Russia China is becoming more asymmetric. And since uh, 2000, 
10, China is the largest trading partner of the Russian Federation, but uh, we can't say it about Russia in the Chinese rank, ranking. It ranked only some 15th position of the main trade uh, partners of uh, China. Uh, the investments of the two countries are still small, and uh, uh, the investments of Chinese investments in Russia significantly exceeded uh, Russian ones in the China's economy. Development of economic cooperation is constrained by the raw material nature of Russian economy, uh, underdeveloped infrastructure, and also um, environment for some business activity. And uh, at, especially at the level of small and medium-sized uh, business. Uh, dis despite uh, the fast pace of Chinese military industry, Russia remains the major supplier of military goods and services in China. But uh, we are, don't want to form a military alliance because we have a military cooperation with some uh, countries that have a territorial disputes with China, especially with, uh, with India, and also by, uh, with the Southeast uh, Asian countries. A new area of cooperation is combined plans for, as I said, for Russian-Eurasian integration within, within the uh, East, uh, uh, Eurasian Economic Union and the Chinese uh, initiative, uh, One Belt, One Road. Uh, uh, certainly, for the time being, one can talk about achieving some political consensus uh, to be supplemented by some economic measures. Uh, however, uh, the decision already been made to avoid unnecessary uh, competition between Russia and China, especially in, um, in Central Asia. Uh, Russia-China watchers know that under Xi Jinping, uh, Chinese diplomacy is gradually leaving aside reactive approach, seeking more proactive policy. Uh, the growing uh, economic, military, and political potential of China has led to the formation of more um, pronounced strategy aimed solely at protect, protecting its uh, national interest, and there are also some differences in our approaches in the security in Central Asia. But uh, I think uh, that Russia and China are not moving uh, towards a formal military and political uh, alliance uh, because it's not in the interests of. Um, two countries, and it, it's, it's not uh, Russia's interest to have a, a military alliance, and also China don't want to, to have a Russian uh, a military alliance with Russia. Uh, and finally, um, I would say that China, uh, China side objects to the term uh, invented by some Russian watchers, it's friendly neutrality. It was proposed by some Russian researchers, which assumes a neutral but de facto approving position on those areas where opportunities for open support are absent. In official Chinese statements, the position on Ukraine and the Crimea is called just and fair. So relations uh, with China, we have some moral categories, are included by China in a broader context because uh, it can't be spoken on neutrality uh, because neutrality is unchanging position that doesn't depend on Russia's specific action. Uh, uh, and finally, um, I would like to, to think that uh, Russia's relations uh, with Asia uh, is not equal to uh, Russian uh, relations with China itself, because 
we need um, for our uh, strengthening of our Pacific strengthening, we, we need a uh, new, uh, we need uh, to, to develop partnership with some other, uh, some other uh, parties in the region because uh, we, it's very important to develop uh, relations between, uh, between uh, Russia and India. And uh, the dominant position of China strongly narrows the possibilities of Russia for Russia to use its uh, advantages uh, in the region. And uh, it's necessary to intensify cooperation with other Asian countries, in particular with the Japan, Republic of Korea, Mongolia, ASEAN countries, uh, as well as with India. Thank you very much. Very good. I'm, I do appreciate the invitation. I think Mark has started a very important conversation and I'm glad to be a part of that. Uh, because the idea of Eurasia has a lot of attraction. The concept has a lure. Not only in Russia, in Brussels as well. Certainly in Brussels it's very useful because it is the main explanation of why Russia cannot ever be a part of the European Union. Russia is different. Europe is the European Union. Russia is something else, Eurasia. I disagree, but that could be a conversation for a different forum. It's more interesting about how uh, the whole kind of concept is developed in Moscow. That's what we're discussing here. And you kind of look at that uh, discussion about Eurasia, which is a very intensive discussion, not just kind of historically recently. I made some we're preparing for that, I can look at the, what's happening in the kind of Russian expert circles, and I kind of found in the last couple of months kind of 12 very, very solid articles discussing it from different uh, perspectives. And uh, what impression I got from that kind of very recent spasm of this old discussion is that it is a very strange uh, mix. Eclectic probably would be a nice word for that. But there are really so many different strains in that discussion. You go in, uh, across them and you feel each of them is wrong in its particular specific way. One strain, for instance, is uh, going back to the tradition, to the Eurasian ideas developed 100 years ago in the uh, 1920s by Russian immigrants, uh, primarily through Bitskoy was kind of there. And... Uh, one of their key propositions was that Russia is different because for, uh, for, for Russia and Soviet Union then the idea is state is central, not individual but state and they were in many ways viciously anti-liberal uh, in that, uh, in that uh, school of thought which inevitably brought them uh, very close to fascism. A lot of sympathy towards early fascism in Italy and even in Germany. And so when it became clear what fascism really is, Nazism, the whole kind of school collapsed. Uh, uh, generally, the same argument applies today. There is a different uh, train of thought, so to say, kind of more kind of cultural, religious, Slavic Orthodox. And Solzhenitsyn is there and Huntington is there, from the other hand, uh, who kind of try to present kind of Russia as a particular civilization, 
and where this particular uh, thought kind of breaks down is on Ukraine. Because without Ukraine, it doesn't work. And Ukraine doesn't want to have anything to do with that, not then, in particularly not now. There is a different uh, train which is a kind of a bit nostalgic, saying we need to preserve everything good which was in the Soviet Union. There was a lot of things which worked uh, in many different uh, areas, and probably for the younger generation it's completely incomprehensible. For the likes of me, there is still kind of some ring to that. And it was Nazarbayev, definitely, uh, the leader of Kazakhstan, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, who pioneered the whole, uh, this whole thought, was a founding father of that particular proposition. And it was interesting for me what he would say about it now that he's stepping a little bit aside, a little bit away from the kind of position of power. I looked at his final uh, statements and speeches, and he said about that absolutely nothing, not a word. Like for him, it is case closed, which I, th I thought probably uh, is also a meaningful message. There is economic approach, certainly, to, uh, to Eurasia, um, that uh, Russia needs to kind of create its own version of the European Union, at least uh, as it started, with institutions, with economic cooperation, with uh, custom union, uh, free trade, free movement of people. And there is an interesting beginnings in that area. It doesn't, it's not dysfunctional. But uh, it's clear how quickly it hit the limit of this whole institutional development. And Russia's conflict with Belarus going on and on and on and continuing as we speak is probably the best illustration of that. Russia cannot be really an engine, a locomotive in that integration, its economy is not good enough, not strong enough. The economies are not really uh, complementary, more and more of economic ties in this, uh, in this integration project, in fact, go outside, including towards China. There is an interesting political proposition in the whole Eurasianism, which essentially builds on the point that Russia is genetically predisposed towards authoritarianism. And I'm not making it up. It was Karaganov who said it fairly, very recently, and I cannot even argue with this nonsense. But kind of, there is, leaving genetics aside, a point in that, uh, that it's not really about Russia in Europe. It's much more about Russia in the West. And West certainly is not a geographical uh, notion. Looking from Moscow, a lot of West is in fact located East. Japan is there, Australia is there, New Zealand, uh, South Korea, Taiwan after all. So it's, it's about kind of Russia confronting the West, being, being different from the West. And the point here is that in that confrontation, Russia doesn't have a chance. We had that before with the Soviet Union, and China generally very carefully stays away from that confrontation. And Russia has no possibility to bring it to a draw even. The, uh, the whole kind of weight of the two propositions is too different, and whatever Russia is claiming about its values being uh, so, so very different, it only underscores the kind of difference in, in power. There is a different train of thought, and uh, we have heard about it, about Russia's need to pivot to the East. And the point there is that 
Europe is generally in decline, that project is in disarray, the real dynamism, the real life is now in the, in the Asia-Pacific. That's where Russia needs to turn and to connect with that. And it sounds reasonable, except that Russia cannot. After all the efforts at kind of uh, pivoting, is there is still, you look at the real amount of ties and uh, connections, it's still too little going, going east. In many ways, the, the barriers, cultural and others there, are too, too high. Even Russian corruption cannot connect with Chinese corruption. They are generally too, uh, too different. Too many things don't work with the pivot, though our idea looks always attractive. So each of these propositions is flaws in its own particular way, but it looks like together they still make sense, like some total is more interesting than each of the elements, but it's not really uh, a blend. It's really a hodgepodge, a jumble, and it's very difficult to make a coherent uh, argument against the jumble, against the hodgepodge. Probably it's even theoretically impossible. So I always try to pick something in that which is more interesting uh, for me, and I generally prefer to look at this kind of geopolitically. Uh, what is more natural for a professional peacenik than taking a, a realpolitik approach? Uh, uh, so, and in this kind of uh, Russian direction of thinking, uh, Eurasianism connects very, connects very clearly with the idea of multipolarity. And it's a rather old idea which was present. I was there kind of in Moscow when it was just beginning to, to take shape with Primakov and with Kakoshin, still Soviet times, which then, back then, sound kind of interesting because it clashed with the Marxism orthodoxy about two camps. It was something else, an attempt to do something, uh, something different. Uh, and the point is now, at least, that there are multiple centers of power in the world, and Russia needs to be one of such competing and cooperating power centers. Russia needs to establish its own uh, profile in that new world, which is not unipolar, not uh, bipolar, but uh, multipolar. Uh, the question here is, what is Russia's strength? What makes Russia a center of power? And here, again, the economy is too weak, the population is not that great and shrinking, the territory doesn't make much sense anymore. What are you left with? What is what makes Russia the center of power? And you inevitably conclude with the military. Russia is a nuclear and, uh, and conventional military power, that's its main strength. That's what this kind of idea of Eurasianism uh, puts in the center. Russia needs to make military power and nuclear forces in particular into the usable instrument of its policy to rely on that sort of strength, which is a dangerous proposition. And that's why for me as a, as a professional peacenik, it really requires a lot of, uh, a lot of attention because this militarization uh, uh, brings a lot of risks. Uh, it is questionable proposition whether you can have a, uh, uh, first-class military with a fifth-class economy, whether can one can support another in the, in the long run, but again, it's a proposition not for uh, nowadays, it is something for the, uh, for the kind of near future, and it's clear that it, it gains strength uh, in the recent years in the course of this cooperation. When Putin 
uh, was kind of shaping up his previous presidency in the years 11, 12, and 13, his ideas of Eurasianism and publication on that was essentially about very different things. That is, uh, has kind of really come to the front uh, in the course of the confrontation. We have this very strong focus on emphasis on the military uh, component of power. And the question is where exactly Russia is trying to project this power, where the power is usable. And it's not really in the in Asia Pacific. Russia cannot find a way to apply uh, power projection there. And Putin's meeting with Kim, which has just concluded, probably shows that rather than disproves that uh, Russia is rather in this uh, very tense situation there, isn't many militarily rather weak, surprisingly. Where the military power plays a role isn't several. Uh, particular uh, directions, and one of them is Black Sea and Crimea. Definitely that is where a lot of attention goes. That's where Russia feels kind of new strengths. Militarized Crimea in the very center of Black Sea uh, theater uh, is an asset uh, in many ways, and Russia is trying to build up on that, uh, trying to establish dominance here, one direction. The second is the Baltic theater. And I probably don't need to explain to Sweden how exactly uh, this uh, um, is, is kind of important and, and, and dangerous and risky. Again, it's a big and separate discussion, but clearly Russia is putting a lot of um, effort here. The third, on which I am doing a lot of research, is the Arctic. Yes, Russia is trying to build its military muscle in the, in the Arctic, which in fact, goes cross-purpose with the idea of Russia as a great Arctic power, which was presented very recently in St. Petersburg at the Arctic Forum, which was essentially about cooperation. Cooperation among the kind of Arctic Council, among the Arctic littoral states, um, that kind of they need somehow to establish their own um, uh, sovereign control over the Arctic, that's going kind to of be, be Russian ideal. Militarization of the Arctic clearly goes cross-purpose with that, doesn't really, uh, one doesn't support another and it's still going on very strongly. It's not only the chain of bases along the Northern Sea Route, that's in fact a minor thing. Primarily it is the uh, Kola Peninsula and the Barents region, that's where the main effort is. And is now another dimension to power projection, it's the Middle East with Syria definitely the, as the focal point of that, and from which Russia is trying to, uh, to uh, expand, which is very difficult because Syria consumes a lot of material effort and, uh, and resources, and the Navy is overstretched as it is with the operation in Syria. It's very difficult to spread in, but nevertheless, this is a very important point in the Russian, uh, so to say, militarized uh, geopolitical uh, vision of Eurasia. And what is the bottom line? I need to come to that because my time is coming to a close. Uh, surprisingly, you look at all this effort and what you see there is that Russia is focusing its attention, efforts, resources on the Western theater in the larger sense, from the Arctic to, uh, to the Black Sea. It, with all the talk about pivoting to the East, about building alliance in China, about paying attention to this and that, this is still where kind of, the main, uh, uh, effort and attention goes. In many ways, confrontation connects Russia 
as effectively to Europe as cooperation did. It's a different quality in that connection, certainly. It is a different, uh, much, much more risky, much more um, uh, troublesome and problematic, but nevertheless, that's somehow from this militarized concept of Eurasia, that's where we end up, as Russia is still in so tightly connected with the, uh, with the, uh, with the, uh, not just with the West in general, but with Europe specifically in the theater, there is very little left for anything else uh, as far as kind of Russian uh, policy is concerned. And I stop here. Thanks very much, Pavel. And our final speaker, Maria, please. Thank you, Mark. Once again, my thanks to the organizers for an opportunity to present today in front of such a distinguished audience. And thank you to my co-speakers for very interesting uh, speeches uh, before me. What I'm going to do now uh, within the time which, uh, that, I get, that I have is to speak a little bit in brief about uh, uh, Russian Eurasianism and the Russian interests related to it. Then to, uh, to speak about two cases of uh, the projection of Russian interests in its uh, close-in Eurasian space in the post-Soviet Union. And uh, since Igor already told about China, uh, you some facts, I will touch it only very, very briefly and later we maybe can cover it during the discussion. So uh, we all know that there are several interpretations of Russian Eurasianism. And Mark already mentioned the first one, because most generally they uh, attribute to uh, these um, philosophical ideas behind the political, different political movements of Eurasianism, the same name. And uh, here we can talk a lot about na Russian national identity, its historical path, um, Russian cultural affiliations. But what to my mind uh, is more important is to talk about the second um, interpretation of Russian uh, Eurasianism. It's how it's done in practice. In practice, in contemporary Russia, the material embodiment of this idea of Eurasianism, due to different historical, um, geopolitical, domestical, political, and changing balances factors, uh, was promoted in a sequence of um, different integration, economic integration institutions within the post-Soviet space. This is the so-called Eurasian economic integration. And today, my colleagues already mentioned it. And uh, while Talking about the second understanding, the practical understanding of Eurasianism, we should be very careful about the very term Eurasia, how in Russia Eurasia is understood in this, uh, in this case. Uh, discursively, it goes back to 1990s, and uh, Pavel already mentioned Nazarbayev's idea of Eurasian Union in 1994. Uh, he spoke about this um, substantial big a uh, supranational body which can unite different post-Soviet countries in one single space uh, for, uh, the <clears throat> for the goals of the common defense policy and common economic networks. And this practical second idea later found is, is in its way in the economic institutions which I spoke about, uh, starting from the Eurasian Customs Union in 1990s up to the uh, Eurasian Economic Union which we have now. Uh, also in the common defense policy in the collective security treaty organization in the post-Soviet space. And uh, finally, in um, Putin's ambitious interpretation of Eurasian Union as a part of greater Europe, which uh, Igor already also mentioned. Uh, greater Europe is a self-sufficient supranational entity between the Asia-Pacific and uh, Eurasia, uh, European Union. Uh, first of all, open for the 
members of the Commonwealth of Independent States. And behind this practical side of Eurasian integration uh, in the former Soviet space uh, stood both Russian interests, Russian security concerns, and the interests and security concerns of the other countries who uh, were participating in this process. If we take Russia itself, I suggest that among the, its interests, geopolitical ones took precedence over other ones, and non-traditional security threats over traditional ones. To be more precise, uh, we, we know that there are different uh, explanations of Russian international behavior. It's defensive, offensive, or even uh, Russia, which tries to, stand, to, stand, uh, to stay isolated and unique in the modern world. And if we take a closer look at, uh, at Russians, uh, at the publications by Russian experts, the defensive explanation is the most uh, popular within Russia itself. So uh, the idea is that Russia was victimized after the end of the Cold War, and uh, it, was, it wanted to be treated as an equal by Western powers, but it, uh, it didn't happen. And what Russia had basically was the eastward enlargement of NATO, the EU's Eastern Partnership, and that's why Russia did what it did in 2008 and later in the Crimea case. And uh, later in this, Russia supported big Eurasian Union. If we go uh, more, <clears throat> if we go more directly to this uh, Russian geopolitical neighborhood and how Russia projects its interests in these countries, which can be called the close-in Eurasian space, I would like to talk about two interesting cases. The first case was mentioned also briefly today by Pavel, the case of Belarus. Um, if we take a stance on this case, uh, we know that Belarus is one of the consistent participants of the so-called Eurasian integration since 1990s. And it is obvious that recently Russian stance towards more comprehensive integration in this dimension became very tough. While Belarus uh, remained for decades Russian most uh, supportive ally and vice versa even both both countries uh, even though both countries experience trade wars from time to time uh, recently Russia emphasizes on deeper political financial uh, industrial and other forms of it integration within the long existing format of the uh, Union state between Russia and Belarus and this position is much more ultimate than ever how has this become possible this is a very, this is a very interesting question there are opinion, different opinions on expert community about that. And uh, most of them say that uh, Russia somehow combines, combines its recently weakened economy with a more pronounced inclination to rely on its own capabilities and uh, decrease dependence on its um, old allies. Also, there are various internal challenges and disagreements within the uh, Eurasian Economic Union, which were proclaimed, declared, articulated by the Belarusian side, such as Romanian trade barriers, uh, the question of rights equality within the Eurasian Economic Union and different trade limitations, open, open question of uh, the, the common energy market, and so on and so forth. All this worsened the overall climate of the relations between China and Belarus, and in its turn caused Russia's accustomed very tough stance in this conflict. The second case is also very much very interesting is the Central Asian case. This is uh, an example of Russian projection of its strategic interests uh, where Russian geopolitical and security uh, interests, they coincide with the security interests of the countries in Central Asia because of the Afghanistan question. Uh, this assists the demand for 
Russian collective security uh, services in the region, in Central Asia. And in Russia itself, this strong emphasis is put on Russian exclusive role on the only guarantee of security in the region uh, through collective security treaty organization. In its turn, it justifies Russian internal discourse about uh, Russia's Eurasian mission in Central Asia. And uh, on the other hand, very complicated economic and so social situation in Central Asia, uh, together with not very strong political institutions, make Russia to be seen in these countries as the main donor, uh, large investor, and a very attractive job market for Central Asian migrants. But if we look at this situation from another perspective, the security cooperation in Central Asia are not, uh, the, in terms of security, Central Asia is not fully the member of, not all of the countries in Central Asia are members of the Collective Security Treaty Organization. We all know that. Also, during different political crises in Central Asia, those countries, countries which were the members of the uh, Collective Security Treaty Organization didn't get the help from the organization which they really wanted, which, uh, <clears throat> which showed that the limited capacity of the organization to counter threats to regional security. Also, the process of expanding Eurasian integration in Central Asia has retarded. Only two states, Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, are currently the members of the Eurasian Economic Union, while Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, they don't hurry to do that. And of course, we cannot speak about Turkmenistan because it has its neutral status. Both for those who joined the Eurasian Economic Union and for those who did not, there are also negative factors, such as the impact of anti-Russian sanctions and the decrease of prices on, on energy resources. And of course, last but not least, there is obvious uh, economic influence of China. In certain segments of the local economies, China became the leader already, and Russia cannot but consider that, because China gives a helping hand both in the economic sphere and also for some countries, for example, Tajikistan, in the sphere of regional security. And the last interesting tendency is this recent um, rapprochement of the Central Asian states initiated by Uzbekistan. The much needed normalization between the states, it's what, it was gendered up by many factors, but among them was uh, the placement of the Central Asian states among the main priorities uh, for Russia's new foreign policy in 2016. Uh, in this process, the Central Asian leaders set the common goal for further uh, regional self-identification. And this is a very interesting question, because still this is just a task. But in the future, the search for updated common Central Asian identity may become a question for Russia as well, because it will not necessarily be a Eurasian identity, but something else founded by the Central Asian countries themselves. And finally, just a few words on China, if I have time. Um, China, of course, is the third, the third uh, major power in the world and Russia's biggest neighbor. And uh, on the one hand, there are many ideas about that Russia and China make, may make this axis and together confront Western countries, but this is of just the ideas uh, which are supported by certain parts of societies. Um, actually, while, while Russia started its closer cooperation with China uh, recently in 2015, which was also mentioned, it was because of the Moscow's disillusionment with the rest and the, necess the necessity to find a partner, to find an economic partner, first of all. And on the other hand, uh, both of the countries, they have significant dif differences in terms of their stance towards the future of the world. Because um, Chinese interests 
China mm, wants to be and increases now its role as a significant contrib contributor to global governance. Um, it has, it uh, participates in UN, UN peacekeeping organizations and uh, started its uh, participation in the world climate change, the, the world fight uh, against climate change. Uh, and uh, China is very much interested in a, in, a, in a stable international order. And we cannot see much willingness from Russia in this case. So these two countries, uh, probably it will be quite hard for them to fruitfully co cooperate in the future because they have different world order attitudes, different world order policies. And uh, probably this will constrain the partnership between them. And there are also other questions uh, Igor was mentioning some of them, for example, the Russian dependence on China, uh, the danger of Russian dependence of China in economic terms, uh, since Russia uh, exports mainly raw materials to China. And the question is what's, what's going to happen in the future? And uh, finally, the idea of conjugation of the Belt and Road Initiative and um, Eurasian Economic Union is also very interesting. Uh, but if we see, if we take a look at the, at the practical document, which came out of this very idea. For example, the last year's agreement, agreement on trade between China and the uh, Eurasian Economic Union, we can see that this is just a protocol of intent without clear, clear obligations. And the majority of the Eurasian Economic Union countries, all of them, basically, they all have their trade relations to China on the bilateral level. That's why it's, at the moment it's very hard to predict what kind of uh, fruitful future of this cooperation we may see. I think this is the time for me already. And thank you very much for your attention. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you very much for these fascinating presentations. All the speakers are, have been very well behaved in their time uh, allotted, so grateful for that. Um, uh, as a historian of uh, political and geopolitical ideas in Russia, I can't resist uh, the comment uh, that the, the observation that this notion of pivot that was very central to the subject today, pivot to Asia, that is, in, in terms of Russia, is actually a very old uh, notion, and it's something that uh, comes back uh, perennially. Uh, I wrote my dissertation on the uh, Russian annexation of the Amur River Valley. This was in the 1850s, and that was driven very much by a notion. You could read Alexander Herzen at the time, a notion of this Pacific would become the Mediterranean of the future, and Russia had to reorient away from Europe toward that. The 1920s, when uh, Leon, just after the revolution, when Leon Trotsky was still head of the army in the early 20s, he was also very much an enthusiast of developments in the Far East and turning, reorienting Russia, uh, the Soviet, new Soviet Union, in that direction. You may even know the film Dersu Uzala from the great uh, Japanese director Kurosawa, which was, of course, a joint project with uh, the Soviet Union in the 1970s, again, about the Sakhalin, about the Russian Far East. Uh, uh, and, of course, we have it today. So this notion of Povarod Kazi is something that, uh, is, is from, the, from a historical standpoint, is, is a very fascinating thing to, to observe because it always uh, comes back. Um, I was a little surprised uh, in the presentations that it was only one of our speakers, this was our last speaker, who focused on this issue of the Eurasian Economic the Eurasian Economic Union, which I thought in putting this together was actually going to be much more central. So what I'd like to do, just to ask a quick question to get the discussion going, then we'll open it up, but I just would like to ask the other two speakers uh, about this, because when um, this was founded in 2000, I mean, officially, I mean, it's been talked about since the 1990s, from and beginning indeed in Kazakhstan, as has been pointed out. Um, <clears throat> then I think officially set up in, 19, in 2015, and when it was set up, 
It was seen in the West by many observers in the West very much as a sort of pr platform for a prospective reintegration of, uh, of Russia. Um, the fact that it hasn't been hardly mentioned by the other two speakers indicates that might not be, this, th this particular function might have been lost or uh, maybe somehow less important. I would like to ask just briefly if the two speakers could comment on, 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 on this function and, and in general about the status of this uh, Soyuz, uh, the, uh, the Eurasian Union today. Please, but in fact, I mentioned the Eurasian Economic Union several times in relation with China. Uh, but uh, you have said that uh, uh, it was seen like a, a way to reintegration. But I think some Western observers and even Chinese observers regarded it, it like a rebirth of the Soviet Union. So they mainly focused on the political side of the uh, Eurasian Economic Union. But intention of Russia and other, uh, other states, uh, I think, wasn't political. It's just uh, want to develop some, uh, to put more emphasis on the existing uh, economic ties between these uh, post-Soviet uh, post countries. I think, I think it's too early to speak about results because, uh, for example, in Europe, European Economic uh, Union uh, has very long history and now we have only three years. Uh, certainly, um, the situation now is very complex and uh, even Western sanctions on Russia influenced uh, cooperation inside Eurasian Economic, uh, Eurasian Economic Union. So I think the idea is positive. I think uh, it will go ahead. And uh, I think it's, uh, it's mentioned in the Russian Foreign Policy Council that uh, Eurasian Economic Union is based on universal principles. So it's, it's very well... Um, Mm, it's 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 a uh, it's not like a China one belt one road that uh, it's not integration project and it's not a concept uh, it's like initiative, but Eurasian Economic Union is based on some principles like European Economic Union. So I think it's it's too early to speak about results. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Other. Yes, among the articles I've kind of looked to preparing for this one was dealing specifically with the union, and the headline is. The Euro Eurasian Economic Union is more alive than dead, and it was probably the limit of the opt optimism of that author who uh, examines the uh, economic cooperation. And I think the whole proposition looked interesting, uh, probably more interesting, when Russia was on track of economic modernization. We still Medvedev's track. And what happened... Uh, at the kind of at the important watershed between Medvedev and Putin was that suddenly Putin discovered that all the modernizers, all those who are involved in economic modernizations, are out there in the streets protesting. And that was very much the end of the whole idea of uh, Russian modernization. And that very significantly damaged the whole idea of the Eurasian Economic Union as well is if Russian economy isn't really modernizing, it, if, if it remains uh, oriented towards the export of uh, uh, raw, raw materials, essentially, and energy, it's only that much it can, uh, it can give to, um, to uh, the countries in, in, the, in the neighborhood, particularly with some of these 
in fact, competing in this area like with Kazakhstan. And I think the imp impact of sanctions is still cannot be underestimated uh, while Russia is trying to be sometimes in denial and sometimes to present them as the main explanation of this and that. Uh, since kind of Russian economy is sanctioned and is going to be sanctioned more and more, and the kind of other countries are not and are not not going really to uh, uh, to in any way to challenge this regime of, of sanctions, that really undercuts many of the economic ties, and I don't see uh, in the near term any prospect of uh, of um, positive development of that. So that's why I think the the, now the foundation of the Eurasian project, as far as Moscow is concerned, is different. That the economic uh, proposition doesn't work, doesn't really hold, hold water. Russia needs something else, much more reliance on hard power, where uh, that's why I focus there. Okay, well, thank you very much. Uh, now we can open the floor. I would just ask the speakers to, uh, the questioners rather, please to try to be concise in your, uh, uh, in your question. So we have one. Well, Kakabadze, Georgian Embassy. I have some question and maybe comment to Mr. Denisov. It seemed to me that, maybe it seemed because I'm underlining it, if I'm wrong, please correct, that you regret that China is not recognizing Abkhazia and former South Ossetia. By the way, I, would, I have to make some clarification. We were part of CIS, we were part of ODKB, so-called ODKB, but it did not guarantee our security and mainly territorial integrity, which was envisioned by all CIS documents. And only after that, we start to speak about NATO aspirations, first. Secondly, just as a reminder, in the 93, when our head of state by that time, Mr. Shevardnadze, felt that separatists supported from Russia, he made such a general warning that separatists is very dangerous one. It may destroy not only small countries as Georgia, but big empires as well. Even on some extent, he compared the activity of separatism to boomerang. Now, question, Mr. Denisov, you said that you speak on your personal behalf. How do you think, is it correct the recognition of Abkhazia and former South from Russian side? Thank you for your question. Uh, I don't uh, um, give this example like, uh, that I am regretting something that China uh, didn't recognize Abkhazia, uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, certainly. I just to show uh, that there are some differences between Russia and China position, because uh, a lot of times I've seen in the Western press that uh, uh, Russia and China are partners, alliance partners, military alliance partners, and uh, their world look fully correspond corresponds and complements each other. I just uh, cited this example. Uh, I fully understand your position, but I cited this example just to show that not on all uh, questions that are important for Russia, China supports it. Crimea is another example. Thank you.
I think it's the right decision for Russia to recognize it. Thank you. My name is Steve Fredrickson. I'm a journalist. I think everybody here wants your comment on today's meeting on Russian island outside Vladivostok and um, between Russia's and North Korea's leaders. Uh, especially, I would like to ask you what does President Putin hope to get out of it? Great. Yes. Uh, it is certainly something, uh, we have a very special occasion for, for our seminar, and as far as Eurasian context is concerned, it's very relevant. Yeah, yes, yes, on the Ruski island, of course. Uh, and Putin wanted that meeting for a long time. And the in, kind of invitation was there, and the Russian diplomacy was working on organizing it. What made it possible was the fiasco of the summit in Hanoi. Uh, after which uh, Kim number three uh, thought that he needs some extra ammunition for the next summit with Trump, uh, that he needs somehow to show that it is, uh, it is uh, more than just uh, chemistry between him and Trump. He has other, uh, he can, is able to involve other uh, neighbors in the conversation in Russia very much uh, when Russia speaks about the Korean problem the words you will always hear is six-party talks that's what Russia wants that's a format Russia sees as a, uh, ideal and uh, for Putin that's probably a step in, in this direction but essentially one important and typically hidden context of kind of the Korean issue as far as Russia is concerned is that Putin needs to establish the point that sanctions don't work. It's not about Korea, certainly. It's much more about Russia. That sanctions cannot force North Korea to go to decolonization, and that's something he, uh, he very much wants to kind of demonstrate. Uh, uh, it's difficult to undermine the sanctions regime around North Korea because UN is, is behind that, so the space of uh, activities for Russia uh, is limited. Uh, and in fact, the main voice here is certainly China. If China wants the sanctions to continue, they will continue, and Russia is, cannot deviate from that, uh, from that instruction. And if China, on some, on, not because of North Korea, but because of its difficult relations with United States, because for China that's the main issue, and Russia has no clue about these negotiations whatsoever. If China would decide that some extra pressure on the US is needed, and sanctions regime against North Korea needs to be weakened, Russia is there to do it. A few thoughts. Um, as we haven't seen the official documents which came up out of this meeting yet, or, uh, at least me, I haven't seen them yet. So uh, the very short answer to your question probably might be what... There are, there are no documents, ah. only, only a toast. 
Okay, so that's then. Then it's easier to answer. So the most uh, the most important part, which Russia probably wanted for, wants and wanted from this meeting, is demonstrative. And Pavel already said this: we're demonstrative. To demonstrate, uh, this is about the also the conflict, not only the conflict bet uh, between the Russia and the West, but also the conflict of personalities between the personalities. And if Putin meets a North Korean leader and can. Uh, also, can also do the same thing which Trump done some time ago. It's also shows that Russia has its 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 world its uh, its role in projecting the world power. That's it. I mostly agree with previous uh, speakers, so I don't uh, like the idea that showing something to the West because sanctions uh, doesn't work. It's a consistent policy of Russia to participate in. Uh, uh, Korean Peninsula denuclearization, and I think nothing has changed from the six-party talks, and so Russia does want to emphasize its role. Certainly in, in present situation, China's, uh, China role uh, is more important, and, uh, but uh, I don't think that they have some uh, big influence on, uh, in this issue, and the Chinese influence is more than Russian one. Because we also have uh, recently some contacts with North Korean uh, North Koreans, and uh, it was frank. And we have academician exchanges and diplomats. We have an embassy uh, in Pyongyang. So I think it's uh, it's a good uh, way to show that Russia want to be a part of the process, and uh, uh, we should we should mention that China and Russia position is very close. It's certainly not uh, the same, but uh, sometimes uh, China uh, forget to tell us about some resolutions that they produced with the United States in time. But still, uh, now there was once uh, that they didn't say us about project of resolution of the Security Council, but now. There's a good coordination between uh, Russian and China diplomacy, and the position is just the same, that uh, the pressure uh, on uh, North Korean regime uh, doesn't work, and we should uh, take uh, some multilateral efforts, and I think uh, bilateral efforts, and I think that uh, Putin and Kim uh, talks is just a part of the process. Thank you. My name is Sheldon Christ. Uh, I want to bring a, a little larger big, a picture, greater picture of what's going on in the world. I mean, as I would argue that China has decided to change since, uh, the paradigm in the world and stop the idea of geopolitics. That's why they are using this uh, Belt and Road Initiative to help people uh, to develop their own countries by building infrastructure that functions very well in China. Uh, I don't think that Russia understands well, actually the idea of building infrastructure because they don't do it themselves. And uh, they try different organizations so, uh, that they use in different ways. You have the Shanghai uh, uh, Cooperation Organization, which uh, is a very strange organization actually. 
You have India and Pakistan in the same security organization together with China, Russia, and the, uh, the Central Asian countries and so on. And they are also working with other things. So I think uh, the, isn't it like that, that the European and uh, the Eurasian Economic Union is just part of this a conglomerate of organizations that is used by China with the help of Russia to change the world. Who are you directing your question to, please? Who, who would you like to speak to that? All of the, the participants. Maria, do you want to start? start yeah. Yeah, thank you for interesting question. In fact, uh, what you are talking about is different uh, different projects of uh, new Eurasian new designing of Eurasia, and Eurasian Economic uh, Union is the project. The first step project of the Eurasian designing by Russia, because uh, in this famous article in 2011, uh, written by Putin probably, it was uh, mentioned that it will uh, develop until the Eurasian Union, something a political supranational entity. And if we talk about the Belt and Road Initiative, you mentioned the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, whether they overlap or not, it's, it's, it's uh, a bit different because Shanghai Cooperation, Shanghai Cooperation Organization was not actually the uh, first attempt of uh, China to design Eurasia. It was just an attempt of China to find the uh, compromise over, central, over their status in Central Asia, to find the, the dialogue in Central Asia. And when all started, China didn't have much influence in the region. But afterwards, uh, throughout Shanghai Cooperation Organization, China gained, uh, had an opportunity to go deep inside the region, and now we have what we have, with, with Chinese economic influence there, and probably political influence in the future. We'll see, because there is time for elite changes in, 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 in different countries of the region. That Russia is actually building its pipelines. Russia is very good at that, though uh, costs and uh, corruption overcharge on this infrastructure is, is uh, certainly colossal. And certainly China will be a topic for another seminar in the, in the series. And I want just to throw the point that probably in China itself, the whole uh, purpose and structure and uh, amount of costs in the Belt and Road project needs to be rethought. It was renamed several times, but the main, generally, one of the key ideas was that it's a big initiative associated with President Xi. That's what makes him into a, uh, into a leader, and he has achieved what he wanted, at least inside the country. His rule is now... Uh, uh, essentially set that is he achieved that big thing and whether the project now is that important whether it really pays what are the kind of costs and benefits how it um, I think there is an, uh, for China a lot of uh, need to rethink uh, the whole the whole enterprise uh, and to uh, to confine to a fine unit particularly since in some countries there is really strong now uh, reactions uh, on that. And in fact, infrastructure costs quite a lot. And whether it pays, it really depends upon what you transport through that and transport back. And the uh, Chinese economy is not really in such a great shape and probably is in far less great shape than it try, uh, tries to portray. So there are 
serious issues there. Throwing all this money out, I don't think it is something China can afford that for, for, for long. Uh, thank you. Uh, it was an interesting question, but I think you misunderstand the, the concept, Chinese concept. I think Belt and Road is not about infrastructure at all. It's a part, it's a part of a story, but not the only part. Uh, because if you look on the Chinese, even Chinese published documents, I found out that they have uh, one uh, document in 2014 uh, in the December that uh, are not published. That are not pub is not published. But in open documents, there are political coordination, there are some financial cooperation, and even people-to-people -people exchanges. So to my mind, it's just a synonym of China foreign policy. Once I asked a uh, Chinese diplomat in Moscow whether you have a uh, foreign policy beside one belt, one road. And certainly it's, it's an umbrella. It's not about infrastructure. And the second point, I think that China, uh, perhaps now, but not in the future, is not uh, going uh, to some um, superpower status. They don't want it. They don't really don't want it. And they don't want to change uh, present world order. It's not, and for for them, uh, one belt and one road is not the way to change world order because uh, they're integrating uh, the efforts uh, uh, with participation with some international organization like WTO, like World Bank, and so on. Even in uh, Asian Bank on IB, uh, Asian Bank of Infrastructure Investment. There are a huge um, part of the World Bank uh, participation in the, in the project. So I think it's, it's, it's a bit uh, too early to say that China is uh, going to change. It's good for, for them to be a part of the present-day world order. Um, thank you all, uh, speakers. Um, uh, some of, uh, Pavel, you mentioned uh, pipelines. And I was wondering if, uh, if uh, somebody in, in, in the panel could say a little bit more about the uh, Russian-Chinese energy cooperation. Uh, we read about last year the construction of pipeline. Uh, are there other projects? Are there Chinese investments uh, on Russian territory? And so on. Uh, yes, and that's a topic which had several uh, uh, shifts and, and, and turns, e even from the year of, uh, 14 and 15 when it started uh, a big way. Because one big project which was uh, portrayed as really deal of the century was the gas pipeline um, to China, which is uh, going on slowly than envisaged, certainly. But then... Uh, the whole scope of the effort is that when it will be finally completed, Russia will be able to export gas to China in quantities about a half of what Turkmenistan now exports. So the scope of the whole effort is not really that uh, gigantic, and the second gas pipeline from Yamal never materialized. Where China is now kind of experimenting, uh, uh, as far as energy is concerned, is on Yamal LNG. Uh, kind of looking into what sort of uh, uh, new alternative uh, source 
that might be a very interesting project for Russia, again, with very significant uh, uh, corruption uh, overcharge. But in the big picture of, uh, of Chinese energy supplies, again, a pretty, pretty minuscule. And as far as Russia is concerned, the profits to the Russian budget from that is non-existent because so much uh, money had to be invested in uh, in preparing infrastructure, in granting all sorts of tax cuts and so on, that uh, kind of for uh, for the Russian state, it looks geopolitically important. It pays nothing. I'm not an expert on energy. It's too specific uh, field. But I want just to add one detail. It's about Yamal uh, liquid power gas. Uh, project. Uh, it's interesting that China invested it under the Western sanctions. And so this uh, company, the owner of the project from the Russian side, was uh, under sectoral uh, Western sanctions. And how they did it? They did it through the Silk Road, uh, Silk Road Fund. It's not a bank. Uh, it's acting only on the territory that's not controlled by American, uh, America. It's especially designed to to invest in such a such project. So I think it's a level of Russia-China also coordination. They found the way to escape uh, uh, Western sanctions. Yeah, if we talk about this project, uh, and the question is, who needs this project more? They are Russia. It's Russia who needs this project, because uh, when all the things started to become quicker. It was after the Crimea and uh, after the Crimea issue and after the start of the Russian, the anti-Russian economic sanctions. And uh, if we talk to, for example, if you ask Chinese experts about this and about whether it's uh, profitable to buy gas in, in Russia, uh, when I was in Beijing, they were answering that actually the most important for the, for the Chinese uh, businesses is the price. So in case that there are problems over the price, they will import the liquid gas by tankers from, from anywhere else. So China doesn't need this project as much. Thank you. Uh, my name is Yuan Molander. I'm a retired diplomat. Uh, my question is basically uh, the issue that even if Pavel Bayev told us that uh, the Chinese economy might not be that brilliant, uh, after all. Uh, still, China is an economic giant uh, compared to, to Russia. Uh, and it's not only an economic giant, it's also probably rather much in the forefront in, in, in science and uh, a number of fields, and of course it has a very huge population. Uh, Russia has also a diminishing population and very few people living east of the Urals, where also their natural resources are. My question is this uh, embrace, if it were, or pivot uh, towards China, does that not really create in the Russian elite or in Russia some uneasiness? Uh, how uh, dear is this friendship uh, to Russia? And it's actually directed to all the three. Uh, <clears throat> I think, to my mind, uh, people to, uh, to Asia is not equal to people to China. And for the perception of China, we have 
very good reaction of our population. China is regarded as a friendly power now. I think even uh, China is not using the momentum to develop some projects uh, in Russia based on the, this uh, service. As for the elite, I think well, the result is also opposite. Uh, more attention to the Chinese, uh, to, to the Chinese projects, to the uh, relations with China, um, help to have better understanding and to avoid some uh, phobias. I think in general, uh, the one of the main results of uh, the pivot to Asia is good perception of China in Russia. It's uh, much more better than um, it was some five or ten years, even ten years ago. We can see it from the, our media. No bad coverage or some critical coverage uh, in our media. It's not a censorship. It's just a um, I think a better understanding of the Chinese intent. Uh, but uh, for the, uh, at the same time, uh, China is overreacting to any critics of, uh, to any criticism of its projects in Russia. They sometimes, it was a, um, not long ago, uh, one China diplomat uh, wrote a root, very rude letter to the Nezavisime Gazeta, its independent newspaper. Uh, they questioned uh, China, some China project in Central Asia, and there were very arrogant re reaction uh, from the Chinese embassy. But this paper published their response and say that it's a criminal. Uh, <laughs> it could be criminal charges to such an interference into work of media. Just that it's uh, uh, formal. They don't want to to to, to bring uh, the case to, to the court. But still, I think they sometimes they overreacting to any criticism. Perhaps it's a way uh, to to get some understanding how to to do a state uh, uh, to do a, um, to work with media in Russia because uh, certainly. Media regulations uh, in uh, Russia is a bit more free than than in China, so that they they are not accustomed to to such a reaction that there can be some criticism of China in the Russian press. Yeah, it is an interesting question on which certainly there cannot be any conclusive answer. Uh, clearly, uh, if you look at the kind of uh, geopolitical picture, how dynamic and strong and big China is and how weak is the Russian Far East, and you understand that there is a problem. And you, you cannot deter this problem, you cannot really defend yourself. So in this sense, embracing is it's a rational choice. It's far better somehow to, um, to uh, say that we don't really treat that as a problem, that we go for uh, uh, beautiful friendship. Uh, th th that's kind of far better than trying to build up a grouping of military forces there, which cannot, uh, can, never be, uh, can never be an answer. But it is obvious that uh, for a Russian political elite, the increasing dependency upon China, the, uh, the inequality in this uh, strategic partnership is a problem. And I think Putin's attempt to uh, spin some intrigue with Japan 
was a bit of an effort of kind of easing this uh, this dependence. Certainly, nothing came out of that, and the problem with the Kuril Islands remains there. But at least kind of for a, uh, for a half a year, for a few months, there was a feeling that there might be some opportunities for Russia to play this game and to build closer ties with um, with Japan on that basis. So exploring at least that option. I think was uh, important for Putin, but now that it is, it's exhausted, it's back to this uh, situation of uh, a really difficult dependency. And while Russia is not a part of the One Belt, One Road project, Putin is still going uh, onto, onto this summit in order to show that he fully supports and he is ready to engage and he, that he is not deviating uh, in any meaningful way from the uh, from that partnership. Of course, it's a very hard question, and uh, if we will talk, if we ask ourselves whether there is an anxiety among the official elite, among the elite in Russia, about this close dependence on, dependence on China, not only economic dependence, but in in other in other terms. Uh, they should be. The answer is they should be, but we don't know what's 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 going on inside there. But uh, to uh, come back to our Eurasian perspective, uh, China, and I disagree in this point with uh, uh, some of my colleagues. Um, the Belt and Road Initiative is it is not the short uh, program. This is not a very short project because it was written now in the Chinese official documents, and it's a project for at least half a century, and. Uh, Russia and its Eurasian ambitions, it mostly relies on the language and cultural continuity on the post-Soviet space. So the question will be what will happen after one or two generations? Whether China will be successful on this space or not? And whether Russia will be successful in maintaining its influence, its cultural continuity over there? It's, it's still the question to, to think about. So uh, I think we're coming to the end. Are there any other sort of maybe quick questions or... Okay, then I'd like to thank our speakers. Find us on www.ui.se. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.